Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. It's good to have you all here. And today we're going to be talking about a very interesting topic uh, that relates to affairs on the affairs on the other side of the Indian Ocean. We've previously spoken about things in the United States and Canada. Uh, but today my guest is, is from a really great place, Hong Kong. Um, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, sir? Yes, uh, thank you very much for having me. My name is Ming, Ming Hin Lo and uh, I, I think people in SFL will uh, refer me to Lewis. So long story short, my background, I uh, study in Hong Kong all along, you know, starting from uh, primary school, secondary school and uh, university. I've been through the whole public uh, education sector in Hong Kong. And um, very luckily, I come upon this institute called the Lion Rock Institute. Uh, the, the way I know them, they, they are free market think tank. They are actually one of the very few, very focal uh, free market think tank. And uh, I, for they, they organize an essay contest, and uh, I apply for the essay contest. The reward for the essay contest is actually to intern in uh, a think tank in the US or uh, Canada, Fraser Institute and Acton Institute. So I joined that um, essay contest and then won, and that's how I get, um, you know, I get myself into you know the free market circle, and from then on. I interned at the actor industry, I interned uh, at the United States and I went back to Hong Kong, actually founded Hong Kong Students for Liberty, uh, organized some events and I was actually nominated as a student for the year and uh, Hong Kong Students for Liberty actually got nominated for event of the year also, I think two years ago. Yeah. So I'm... we had... Uh, can, yeah. I, can I ask about that? Because I think that's when you guys hosted uh, uh, Park Yun Mi, is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, long story short, we had invited a uh, very outspoken and well-known North Korean defector, Yami Park, to uh, come to Hong Kong to... Uh, basically, my rationale to do that event is to... Um, you know, we, we are in Hong Kong, born, born and raised in Hong Kong, Hong Kong people. We, we, we never have to think about so many necessity stuff. You, you know, we are born in a rich society. Yeah. Uh, like, rather rich. You, you know, we don't... We don't lack of food, we only have of water, we have our basic, uh, every other basic needs fulfilled. So it's very easy for Hong Konger to uh, mislook, like uh, how can things happen and how can things happen like so fast? Or, you, you know, the, um, or, or I should put it, uh, people don't really realize what kind of freedom we are enjoying. We are taking freedom to a very large extent for granted. And the reason for me to want to invite Yami Pa to come to Hong Kong is to let them understand, you know, trying to spread the message that, uh, you know, why we can be successful, so successful as a city. Yeah, man. Is that uh, we have our freedom, Just you know, to... and if we don't have our freedom, if one day we lost our freedom, you know, here is a vivid example of what will happen to a yeah. like, uh, whole generation of people and, to... and you, you know, everyone inside the uh Gym. Just to explain to my listeners here, uh, Yunmi Park is a North Korean defector, and she wrote a book mm. called In Order to Live. Um, mm. I actually haven't read her book yet. I've read another book by a North Korean defector, uh, Hyun So Lee, oh. The Girl with Seven Names. And okay. the sort of stories that these North Korean defectors go through is just unbelievable, the sort of hardships that they mm. have to go through in order mm. to escape. But very, very mm. interesting. I would really encourage anyone. 
Uh, that's an interesting topic, actually. But anyway, I think we should talk about Hong Kong today because Hong Kong has been in the news in a lot of countries. I think it's a yes. a place that usually doesn't get in the news too much. Sometimes uh, you guys have big protests, but what has been happening this year has been uh, really, really big. But first, let's talk about Hong Kong a little bit because I think to many libertarians around the whole world, especially here in South Africa, we look at places like Hong Kong and Singapore as well, and we see these countries as really great examples of like libertarianism in action. But uh, I want to, you know, ask how how true that really is. So, obviously, in 1997, Hong Kong. Prior to 97, it was a British colony, and in 1997, it was handed back to to Chinese control under the uh, what is it called a one one country two systems policy. One country two systems. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, first of all, let me ask you, uh, I don't know, um, how would you say Hong Kong, in, just in terms of your lifestyle, has really changed bef- uh, right, you know, um, under British mm-hmm. control compared to right now? Mm-hmm. And I mean specifically... So, uh, you know, truth being told, I myself, I, I, I was born in 1993. So, I am so actually like 25 <laughs> turning to uh, 26, like this year. Uh, I cannot attest so much, really, like, like actually being told, my daily life cannot attest so much to the uh, colonial government. But there are a couple of things that I, I think we uh, can see simply by looking at the figures. We, we, we will know, like, what are the differences between uh, the, uh, you know, ruling under the colonial government? Does the British did that school or, you, you know, are they really owning us anything in the whole, uh, you know, Hong Kong um, saga that we're having? A couple of figures. So Hong Kong was seated to uh, the British colonial government on uh, 1843. 1843, after the Nanking Treaty, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, by that time, when the first, um, you know, when, when, when the general come to Hong Kong and, uh, you know, survey how many people are living here, you know, how are we? Uh, the first general who came to Hong Kong actually said that Hong Kong is a barren rock. There is two places that the British want to have. Uh, one is Hong Kong, the other one is further up in the area. The Cantonese is called Zhao San. I actually don't know the English of that place, but uh, if you want to look it up, you can look at look it up. So British actually asked for another place other than Hong Kong, you know, at first. It, it is a tiny fishing village. Uh, the exact word that the general used at that time is Hong Kong is a barren rock. It will never be an uh, international powerhouse. That are the words by words by the first general from the UK, you know, coming to Hong Kong. And after looking at Hong Kong, they said that. Couple of figures. In 1847, 1843, the, Hong, the population of Hong Kong is 7,450. In 1997, Hong Kong population is 6.489 million. Let that figure sink in a little bit from 7,450 to 6.489 million. Imagine how, how the economic growth um, you know, happened to be able to sustain such population growth, right? What, how, how are the living standards got raised along the, you know, the British colonial government? That's the first figure that I want to cite. And the, another figure that I want to cite is in... Uh, because uh, I, I did some research on, uh, you know, colonial period Hong Kong and, uh, you know, usually look at GDP and population. The GDP of Hong Kong in 1960, this is the earliest point that we 
have like a more accurate information because really in 1843 there are no official record whatsoever not to record the uh, you know the situation in Hong Kong right but in 1960 Hong Kong GDP is 1.321 billion and in 1997 before the handover of Hong Kong Hong Kong's GDP is 177.4 billion wow. US dollar How many folds are there, right? That's a huge. You know what, what? Yeah, that's that's a huge. That's a huge increase. And 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 the reason and the reason the particular reason is the first governor uh, sent to Hong Kong is called um, Pottinger Henry Pottinger. Right after he landed to Hong Kong, he made a statement. He made an announcement, and there are three rules that uh, you know outline what Hong Kong is. The fifth rule is Hong Kong is a low taxation free port. That's the first one. Low taxation, maintain Hong Kong is a low taxation free port. Trade with everyone, including enemies and airline. That's why Hong Kong get to trade with China. You know when the, you know uh, there are other international embargoes maybe on any uh, particular countries. Yeah, we can still trade with everyone. And the third is respect local customs. You know, on the very first couple of months, the first governor of Hong Kong had declared that it is a free port. It has laid down the foundation of you know the uh, small government structure that Hong Kong is going to run. Just attract foreign businessmen, attract everyone essentially to come here to do business. Right. Right. So that's what the British did at the very beginning. And if you look at the whole colonial history, it lasted for so long. Right. From 1843 to 1997. There's a lot of years there, and and, and it, in between that colonial period, also the there is that Japan there is Japanese invasion, you know. Yeah, during World um, War Two. Actually, um, you, you know, was held under control of the Japanese military government, you know, uh, in back in the days, and uh, economically we prosper. Uh, social. Move, uh, how, how shall we like politically democratic movement? We prosper also. You know, one often time we hear so many we, we, we hear so many times people saying that uh, you know the UK should have done this, the UK should have done that before uh, uh, handing it over to China. Why would no one come out to protest? You know, under the colonial government, I, and I there I say this kind of statement is actually factually wrong. In all well, let me ask you quickly because mm. I've heard some mm. statements from Chinese officials that have said mm. that uh, mm. Hong Kongers would not have been able to protest like they did mm. under the British mm. colonial government. Oh, mm. So, so mm. is that true? What kind of freedoms, in terms of freedom of speech mm. and protest, did uh, did exist mm. in Hong Kong under the British uh, administration? Mm-hmm. Uh, they they don't call it they they don't call it demonstration back in the days. Uh, at the fact, uh, let's put it that way. There are like people walking out to the streets, uh, asking for what they want. You know, this kind of um, movement or event might not be classified as, uh, you know, a demonstration, legit demonstration. But uh, you know, people, people, Hong Kong people going out to the street, voicing out their grievances or voicing out their disappointment on the colonial government. It happens all the time. Uh, in fact. Uh, one of the largest protests in Hong Kong history uh, is at the colonial uh, is under the colonial government period. 
and the year is 1989, uh, we protest 1.5 million Hong Kong people came out. You, you know, just now, just now we talk about how a lot, a lot of Hong Kong people coming out, 1 million, 2 million. But back in 1989, there are 1.5 million Hong Kong citizens wow. went out to the street to, pro- to protest for what? That, that's, the, that's, the, that's the point, protest for what? The protest is for the Chinese democratic movement, Chinese democratic student movement that is happening in China and later turn into the whole Tiananmen Square saga. Oh, yes, that's you know, true. There are a lot of protests. There, there, there are a lot of protests, a lot of marching that uh, you know Hong Kong, Hong Kong did before the colonial government. So it is simply factually wrong to say that you know we didn't protest or we didn't we we simply take everything that the Brits gave us. That is factually wrong. We went out to protest. Okay. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the uh, colonial history, the uh, Legislative Council, they, the Brits, are the one that uh, time and time and again, starting from AD 43, from all appointed uh, parliament members to slowly evolving to a 66 election. You know, uh, some one way or the other, they are election, but, uh, you know, direct and indirect election. But, uh, you know, after all, there are uh, election element inside. You know, it's the British colonial government push our uh, legislative council to be more to have more and more democratic elements before before the handover. Let me just ask you quickly because that's also a very interesting topic. Um, can you explain to the listeners here? Because I think many people in South Africa are not aware. Uh, today, right now, how is the legislative council uh, in Hong Kong elected? Because it's not exactly. 100 mm. percent democratic so can you explain that a little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes uh, uh very holistically there are three parts of the uh parliament there uh, there are three elections that will be held in the parliament three sections uh the first is geographical constituency you know you elect your own uh geographic legislator that is uh part of the uh let uh, parliament setup, and the other part is functional constituency called. It's more like a, a, a UK upper house kind of um, having letting the business, letting the businesses have a say and uh, have a vote to voice out their policy concerns and stuff. And uh, the third part is the uh, new territories election, which are some somewhere between elected and appointed. The, uh, I I cannot explain this like. Um, explain it clearly right now, but uh, it is basically consists of three parts. Geographic election, functional constituency election, and new territories. Uh, there is a, another part of election going on in new territories. Okay. The that's, overall is like this. So the, just explain the new territories. Obviously, that's the northern part of Hong Kong. Uh, they yeah, have yeah. their own election and their own seats in the parliament. Or how they, does that work? They, 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 they sort of have like a straight queue to get into the... Uh, legislation council let's put it that way like there are uh, officials members uh, actually I, I have to fact check you know the the new territories part of the parliament thingy okay. I, I might need to uh, you know I, I don't want to give out false statement right it's now. all right I, it's I need all to right. research on it but, I, I understand uh, <laughs> we can check on the, that the democratic elements you, you know consider us talking right maybe you can edit out or edit in things like later on yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 the democratic 
elements in new territories in terms of the parliament is less. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll research that later and see exactly how it is. Okay. Uh, now, I, I yeah, mean, yeah. I think just before we talk about the actual issue of the protests, um, I think one other thing that many people mm. know about Hong Kong and that Hong Kong is so famous for is mm. how expensive it is mm. to rent or to buy an mm. apartment there. So I've seen some analysis on this issue, um, mostly uh, from left-wing sources in America, and they talk about the Hong Kong government's system of leasing out land to businesses in a kind of an auction. So um, I want to ask you, uh, can you explain right now what the, the situation is with rents and uh, property prices in Hong Kong, and why do you think it's gotten like this? Mm. So, uh, long story short, uh, Hong Kong is the indeed is the most expensive city in this world. Uh, why? Uh, if you look at any other international cities in the world, you know, whenever you are an international hub, the uh, property price would definitely be way more than like a smaller and closed economy. That's first thing. But the second thing, why Hong Kong property market is so high? Why the rent is so crazy? It's actually because of one simple supply and demand thing. 99% of the land are owned by Hong Kong government. 99% of the land are owned by the Hong Kong government. Whenever they lease out, you know, whenever they sell, as you have mentioned before, whenever they sell the land to the property developer, there is actually a timestamp on it. So government owns everything. So and uh, if you look at some figures, how many percent of Hong Kong land have been developed? The ratio will shock you. You, you, you want to guess? You want to venture a guess how many percent of Hong Kong is actually developed? Well, I know one, one thing I know about Hong Kong is that it's very mountainous. A lot of Hong Kong, mm-hmm. I don't know if right. it can right. be developed because there's a lot of very tall hills and mountains. Mm-hmm. So I will guess maybe mm-hmm. like what? Is it like 20% mm-hmm. or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'll, I'll put it that way. Uh, one of the characteristics of Hong Kong's building is really to build on uneven surface. Okay. I myself live in uh, Shenwan right now, and whenever I go on the street, it's already a slope there. And it is one of the earliest built buildings in Hong Kong. It's on a slope. So uh, on, on, only because it is on the slope doesn't mean that, the, yeah, that uh, you cannot overcome this uh, one simple uh, obstacle that you have. Uh, a lot of Hong Kong housing are built on slopes, and uh, 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 there are ways to make uh, land buildable. But the, uh, the you know going back to the very core point is the government highly restrict the uh, land supply. There are a lot of building code that one have to follow. There are uh, a lot of plot ratios. Say for example, how tall your building can build. There are uh, land zoning. Yeah, there are more than a thousand hectares of agricultural land in Hong Kong. But think about Hong Kong. Who would have think we are so good at uh, you, you know agriculture, being a farmer? Yeah, that sounds not. strange to but, me. Uh, those, yeah, but those land can the property developer wanted to convert it into commercial use or residential use, but the government did not approve it. That's very so, strange. Uh, yeah, so if you ask me, like, what are the real cause of the, uh, you know, crazy property price in Hong Kong, it's, it's definitely got to be government policies. Oh, man, 
that's a real yeah, they own they, they own 99 of the land and you tell me and you have no you play no part in this no <laughs> that doesn't make sense at all well that's a really strange situation i i originally thought that the the problem was just because of scarcity of land obviously hong kong you know there's some places mm. like mong kok uh which is just full mm. of people <laughs> i think mm. it's the most densely populated place mm. in the world um and i just mm -hmm. knew hong kong is full of mountains so maybe you cannot build on top of this but mm. i mean i was uh, i'm mm. very interested to learn that 99 percent of the land is owned by the government mm. and so there can be no I and don't know. Uh, uh actually like maybe like 50 percent, 50 to 20 percent of the land are utilized consumer oh, the okay. vast majority of hong kong land are undeveloped and you ask why would it be so expensive of course it would be expensive right is there a reason why the government wants to keep the undeveloped land as being agricultural? Mm. And also, let me ask you, when you say agricultural, mm. are there people actually growing crops on this land? It's Oh, there, there are people growing crops, some of them, and a uh, majority of them. Actually, uh, if you uh, Google like brown, brown site, uh, Hong Kong, you, you, you see a lot of like new tourist land uh, are actually used as simply as a container or storage for uh, heavy industry. Like th th those are the land that, that can be used, should be used. But uh, because of the um, existing legislature or how the uh, Hong Kong government set up, Hong Kong government has lesser power in terms of uh, wanting to build anything or in terms of controlling new territories. Give you a few examples. Only in um, Hong Kong new territories, the, those indigenous village people are entitled to have uh, 400 square feet like uh, uh, their own house. They can build their own house. It's called small house policy. Only new territories people, like indigenous people, have those kind of like privilege. Like imagine if like everyone in Hong Kong can claim like a certain amount of land and then build stuff up, you know, property price wouldn't be so crazy, right? But only a portion of Hong Kong people enjoy that particular um, set of policies that favors them. Wow. Well, I think we can see once again that unfortunately when the, mar when the government steps in and tries to control something like this, it doesn't always turn out well. Um, mm. You know, uh, let me quickly ask you one last thing. Uh, you, you've lived and uh, worked in Singapore, isn't that right? Correct. Yes. Yes. I, I lived in Singapore. Singapore's housing policy has been praised by a lot of people because in Singapore, I, I don't know mm. if they have this kind of problem. Um, are you familiar with how mm. they work over there and, and what is the, the big difference in Singapore versus Hong Kong? The big difference, uh, that long story short is they had the... Uh, they build a lot of public housing. They build a lot of public housing. If you have ever been in Singapore, the one thing you notice is whenever you go, uh, I mean, minus CBD area, uh, if you walk on the street of Singapore, everything actually looks a lot alike. You know, everything is just buildings and buildings and the uh, thing out there is just the number that is placed on the block, maybe block 633, block 634, everything looks alike. Uh, and, uh, you know, they build a lot of public housing in Singapore. That's why they, you know, again, it's like demand supply. They get to maintain the, you know, a rather low, uh, a rather low property price. I myself lived in Hong Kong. I myself lived in Singapore. I rent an apartment in Hong Kong. 
the amount that I'm paying in Hong Kong, I can only live in a walk-up building, seventh floor, with one room share. And the same amount of money that I'm paying, I can rent a condo, private condominium, with all the facilities that I want to get in Singapore. Let's talk now about so, the, the recent uh, extradition bill and the protests. Um, so mm. let's start off. I think what uh, it's good to understand uh, exactly, even before this bill mm. was put into parliament, there were mm. some protests in Hong Kong. Uh, mm. And generally, things ha- people, young people especially, have been getting, you know, feeling unwell about the situation in Hong Kong because it looks mm. more and more like uh, the government of China is encroaching mm. on Hong Kong to many young people there. Mm. Now, I know uh, this extradition bill came partly as a result of a case where I believe it was a Hong Kong man mm. and his girlfriend went to Taiwan mm-hmm. and he killed his girlfriend and he came back to Hong Kong. And because there was no extradition treaty between Hong Kong and Taiwan, they could not prosecute him. So this became a big problem. And I think that's why they, they added this bill. Um, so let, let yeah, me... Uh, yes, yeah, go ahead, speak. So, uh, yes, that's very correct. The whole origin of this incident is because in uh, Hong Kong, I actually, a Hong Kong couple went to Taiwan, some stuff. Uneasy stuff happened towards him, and uh, the guy went back to Hong Kong. And um, you know, since he committed the murder in Taiwan, uh, Taiwan uh, Hong Kong court cannot charge him. And uh, I just want to make it make this point clear: whether or not the government passed this proposed extradition bill, Hong Kong government will still have the means. Will still can still do case-by-case case, uh, extradition. Well, that is, in fact, in, in, in fact, even after the proposal, you know, the, the, the Hong Kong government put forward this proposal about, you know, we should amend this bill and uh, uh, enable us to have more extradition bill to many other countries. Taiwan, Taiwan, the country involved, actually said, if you were going to push forward this bill, we are not going to do this case anymore. Jeez, I, w- I was not aware of that. Was is that because it was yeah. uh, the Taiwanese? I'm just trying to remember. I think it's the the LDP, or I've forgotten the name of the party mm. in Taiwan, uh, mm-hmm. was in support of the protest, perhaps uh, Tai Ing-wen. Because mm. uh, uh, the, in the exercise, it comes down to the fine print of the bill. The the, the fine print of the bill stated that uh, uh, you know Hong Kong sort of only would react to the highest jurisdiction of a uh, uh, of a country. So if that holds true, is Taiwan legislature the highest uh, legislative authority or Chinese jurisdiction is actually the highest uh, jurisdiction authority? You, you, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand now. <laughs> I can, I can <laughs> Taiwan see part of China? Like how, how, how we distinguish you know, the, uh, the sensitivity between yeah. the issues? Yeah, I'm fully aware of of the attitude towards Taiwan uh, after having lived mm. in in Guangzhou myself for six months. Um, yeah, which is always very strange to me when I talk to people about these things. Uh, um, <laughs> but anyway, you know, I think there's a larger issue at at stake here. A lot of people were saying, you know, and first of all, these protests were huge. They were enormous. I've never seen a protest this big uh, in my mm. life. Um, and there are many protests here in South Africa as well. 
So, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of people were saying these protests were not exclusively about the extradition bill. Uh, could you talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? What are the, the things mm-hmm. young people mm-hmm. in uh, Hong Kong are worried mm-hmm. about? Uh, that's a that's a very correct perspective. You know, the whole saga started off as uh, you know the uh, extradition bill, but now it has been and it has been evolved into a general a general discontent towards the Hong Kong government for very long now. I, I think like suddenly June, this protest is about still about the extradition bill. Yes, but Carrie Lam herself actually said that uh, Carrie Lam is our chief executive. Yeah. Our chief executive actually says that the bill is dead, like words in words, which uh, some protesters still refuse to believe her. But I tend to think that uh, that is uh, also a reasonable reply. But the protest just never stopped. It just escalated. Why? Because this particular incident, this particular saga, the, 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 the importance of this uh, chain of events is it really first time, it is the first time ever the Hong Kong government has shown its incapability and corruption in the whole administration regime. It's, it's not only the CE. It started off from the CE. Then we see also the police. The police department is somewhat corrupted. They, uh, you know, you, you have seen the news. You have seen uh, police and mob uh, collusion in the Twin Moon, not arresting the uh the white shirt uh, rioters who beat up everyone in Tumun, yeah, not let's, arresting them. Let's talk about that quick. Let, let's talk about that very yeah. quickly because that happened very recently, and uh, I yeah, also yeah. want to just understand. So basically, to explain to the listeners, uh, in a region of Hong Kong called Yunlong, I don't know how it's in Cantonese. Yunlong. Uh, Yunlong. Okay, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> um, no there was in a DTS station, in a subway station. I think mm. some people were trying to get off the, the station just to mm. go out. And these people in white shirts started beating them mm. with sticks. Mm. And uh, tell me exactly what happened there. And you said it was mm. these guys were the members of the triads even, some people were saying. Mm. 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 So uh, basically, the, uh, the movement actually spread from Admiralty, which is the, uh, where the government located in Hong Kong Island. You know, yeah. all of the most of the protests, I would say, like maybe ninety percent of the protests only start and ends in Hong Kong Island. But this time, this incident it has spread to all parts in Hong Kong. There are basically three parts in Hong Kong: New Territories, Kowloon, and Hong Kong Island. And we had marched in every one of them. So, uh, so what happened that day on the uh, uh, in Tun Moon is that uh, we had. Uh, Again, time and time and again, we went out to um, demonstrate. We went out to protest against the government. And along the way, uh, there are anti-protest momentum building up. We highly suspect, and I think if we were to allow to get evidence, we, we will be able to trace the uh, funding back to uh, CCP. Uh, Why do you think that, though? I mean, some people have said that, but that's a big accusation. Do you, well, mm. Why do you think that it's linked to the CCP? Correct. So, uh, yes, uh, let, let's put it that way. There is a fund in China called Social Stability Maintenance Fund. Yeah. And the purpose of that fund is to explore all sorts of methods to 
ensure no one is opposing the regime. No one is opposing the uh, Chinese Communist Party. And uh, there are avenues in Hong Kong. You know, we had uh, pro-CCP organizations. We had pro-CCP legislators. Actually, one of the biggest uh, political parties is uh, called DAB. It's a pro-Beijing uh, uh, political party. And it is a known fact, it is a known fact that Chinese government would spend enormous amount of funding to support the uh, pro-CCP uh, political parties in Hong Kong. And in one particular, the pro-establishment camp, recently there is this um, legislator called Junis Ho, which was, uh, 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 how, how shall I put it? taken care by the CCP. That's why uh, elected as a legislator. And he himself, we've, we've got, we've got uh, proof that he himself is involved in the Tun Moon uh, saga. We have clips of this particular legislator holding hands with the white shirt riots, with the mobs, you, you know, saying that, hey, good job. Uh, 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 yeah, no, that just means like thank you I, very much. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you very much, thank you for your hard work. Yeah, oh, yes, it's thank you for your hard work. Yeah, uh, Xinghu, yeah. Uh, so good to have you. Let's uh, you, you, you know chase the protester out from Yunnan. This kind of incident, we we have clips. If you are talking about like actual proof of funding from here to there, we cannot get it yet. It might be revealed later, but the. Plain fact is a legislator that received money from CCP had been the one who is inside part of the uh, Tun Moon, whole Tun Moon saga. So you tell me if CCP fund this kind of operation or not. And it is, uh, there, there I say it is a known tactic for the uh, Chinese Communist Party to handle uh, demonstration and have opposition voice. You know, yeah. uh, they demonstrate, hire someone inside the demonstration, escalate it, and then the, you know the anti rock anti mob, uh, anti riot police came out and then the clear everything. It's a known tactic. Well, I think maybe you know it sounds to me like there are a few pieces of evidence, but nothing hard. Mm. So maybe the best yeah, thing to do is to correct. wait a little bit. Because, you know, it just happened just now. My and, personal uh, opinion on these things is that I don't like to make accusations when I don't have evidence for it. So I, I, mm. I would much prefer to wait. But, you know, that does right, sound suspicious. Right. It sounds suspicious. Mm. And I, I guess we'll see. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I also uh, hold an open view. That's why, actually, one of the, um, the asks of the protester is to establish a non-biasing independent inquiry on the whole incident, not only on the police, but also on the protester, on everyone. Like, uh, why would this you know, the incident happen? Why do, do, do the police use excessive force? Uh, do the uh, hospital authority really breach their, uh, their file and uh, send out patient uh, personal details to the police force? You know, there are all sort of uh, things that we want to investigate. And one of our big asks is to establish such independent investigation uh, committee to look into all these. But then the government never replied. 
let me ask a slightly different question. Um, one of the things that, you know, I always like to follow the Chinese state-run media on uh, social media mm. because it, it, it allows me to see what they are thinking. Um, mm. And I thought one of the interesting things was that there was actually a protest in favor of the police by, by some people. So I'm ah, to ask, uh, are there still some people in Hong Kong who are actually uh, really pro-China and actually um, mm. really don't agree with any of these protests? Who are these people? Mm -hmm. Is this the sort of older generation uh, mm. or, or who exactly? Mm. Uh, there, there are, there are supporters. Uh, first, if you look at the uh, Legislative Council, if you search on Google pro-establishment legislator, every one of them, even up till now, uh, the majority part of the pro-establishment pro legislators are still moving to the same direction as the government. Meaning that uh, the uh, a portion, quite a considerable amount portion of legislator still are still backing up the government, thinking that uh, you know is uh, you know everything happened because we protest, we ask too much, and uh, we uh, uh, you know there shouldn't be an independent uh, committee to look into all this. So first of all, legislator, there are a lot of people still supporting the government, and uh, in the normal society, I would. I would tend to think that the elderly people, as a matter of fact, my parents actually uh, uh, yeah, yeah, adopt a rather pro-government uh, point of view, you know, thinking that, uh, you know, government had uh, said sorry already, just, uh, you know, let it lie, uh, don't go up and disrupt people's lives every day, so on and so forth. Can I ask, are, so, your, uh, are your parents uh, locals, have they, were they born and raised in Hong Kong? Yeah. They are all born and raised in Hong Kong. Because I also know, I just know that a, a large number of maybe more elderly people in Hong Kong uh, immigrated to Hong Kong mm. from mainland China, mm. I think in like the 1960s, I can't remember what year, but many mm. came as refugees. Mm. Are there still a lot of those mm. people living in Hong Kong today? Oh, there are. I, I mean, uh, I think the uh, census statistics, which is Hong Kong population, you know, Hong Kong government published by Hong Kong government, is that uh, I think almost ninety percent of us is uh, originated from Chinese from China. Ninety percent of Hong Kong people are originated from China. Wow. Okay. Well, I, sp I suppose prior to the British colony being established, I don't know how many people even mm. even lived there. So you can put it like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's mm -hmm. it's just interesting to see these uh, statistics. I also think I, mm. I watched an interesting video about why Hong Kong has the longest life expectancy. And they were saying uh, because of so many people who are old in Hong Kong today mm, were once refugees, mm. they're the kind of people who will really strive to live as long as they can. Mm, <laughs> um, so that mm. was that was very. And also the uh, you, you know the uh, your voluntary death, we don't have that. The voluntary death, like, like uh, in certain European countries, you can opt to end your life. Oh, that's true. Right. Yeah, 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 euthanasia. Right. Uh huh. Uh huh. And uh, we don't have that in Hong Kong. Uh, so yeah, that's like um, you. Know, if you ask me, that's one of the reason. Perhaps like, we, we have the longest life expectancy, but uh, mostly it's because in a lot of places, uh, when a patient grow old enough to a certain point of age, they might want to opt. They may want to make some decision for their life, but uh, you know, in Hong Kong. 
we, we have a general mentality of uh, keeping them the longest is the best. Okay, interesting. I, I, this is something completely foreign to me because we completely don't have mm. this in South Africa. Now, looking mm. to the future of Hong Kong, you know, mm. in 2047, the Sino-British mm. Joint Declaration uh, mm. is going to expire. And after mm. that year, the Chinese mm -hmm. government will legally be able to incorporate Hong Kong just as any mm. other part of China. And mm. I don't know what's going to happen because I think a lot of mm. people in Hong Kong are going to um, be against this, but maybe some will slowly mm. change their minds. So I, I want to ask, uh, mm. is this something that mm. people often uh, think about in Hong Kong uh, this year, mm. 2047, mm. and what is mm. going to happen when that year arrives? Mm. More and more people think about that matter. But uh, there is a point that I want to uh, put it out there before uh, the 2047 uh, so-called deadline arrive. Yeah. According to the basic law, which is the law that governs Hong Kong directions, right? It's a Bible, you know. Yeah. Uh, Hong Kong are allowed to have universal suffrage, one people, one vote, for both chief executive and the parliament. Meaning to say that before 2047, before we hand over to China, theoretically, according to the basic law, we would be somewhat a way more independent uh, city already. So if we take, in, take into the account of that, a lot of people are saying that 2047 would be the doom, a lot, of say, a lot of people are saying that 2047 would be the end of Hong Kong. It might not hold true necessarily. Like if the set political reform or democratic reform, political reform, more like, if the set political reform promise in the basic law can be implemented, there is actually some rooms for us to maneuver. Even after uh, you know two hundred four seven, Hong Kong as maybe part of China, what what kind of role we can play? May not be uh, we be one separate, may uh, be one inclusive identity of China. Because uh, if we look at the fact nowadays, even uh, this year or the past 10 years, Hong Kong contributes 70% of foreign investment into China. Wow, that's a lot, a lot. I, can't, I, I cannot tell you how many uh, Chinese wealth merchants choose to store their wealth in Hong Kong, choose to buy property in Hong Kong, choose to have a Hong Kong passport. So, in the head of the uh, you know the the, the, the the highest authority, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party, they have a real stake in keeping Hong Kong the way it is. That's... They have a real stake to keep Hong Kong as a free port and so that they will have a window to con to be connected to the world. That is a fascinating thought. I had never considered that. Mm. I ha would have just thought that when that year arrives, Hong Kong will mm. just be another city in Guangdong province or something else, or maybe mm. it'll become mm. its own. Of course, there, there, there will be a lot of speculations. That, you know, what I'm saying is only another scenario also. But, uh, you know, if we actually look at the history of Hong Kong, a lot of people have said that 2047 is the deadline of Hong Kong. At least I personally, I, I, I study economics and uh, I intern in different institutes, intern in different think tanks. I myself actually work as a lobbyist uh, after my graduation in Hong Kong. I see there are 
I I I don't see two o four seven as the end goal of Hong Kong. Wow, that's very interesting. I think a lot of people <laughs> in the West see that, particularly in Britain, who would have obviously signed the declaration. Uh, mm. But I mean, that's that sounds to me like good news because it, it sounds to me mm. like a, a solution which the Chinese mm. government will be happy with, and perhaps mm. people in Hong Kong will be happy with as well. Because I know that mm. uh, you know, just take for example language. Um, you know, when mm. you when you went to school, I assume the language your teacher spoke is mm. Cantonese, right? Cantonese. Yeah. So now, if if you it became Chinese now though. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Chinese, but I mean, you know, Cantonese, Mandarin, it's two different languages. I lived in Guangzhou. Yeah. I couldn't understand any Cantonese when, well, a little <laughs> bit, but not so much. Yeah, uh, but right, like yeah. things like that will may have to change. People are used to speaking Cantonese in everyday life. And all of a sudden it's going to be Mandarin because in mm. mainland China, mm. it doesn't matter what part of the country you're in. Uh, you mm. must speak Mandarin, even if you speak a Fangyan, mm. a dialect mm. uh, in your home. Mm. And so mm. I, I originally thought changes like that, people in Hong Kong maybe would be very, uh, they wouldn't, wouldn't mm. be willing to change. Uh, can I ask, just mm. out of interest, um, mm. these days in Hong Kong, can some people mm. speak Mandarin? Do people try to learn Mandarin for business or any other reason? Oh my goodness, thanks God you brought up this point. <laughs> uh, it, you mentioned if Hong Kong is comfortable in switching the language from Cantonese to Mandarin. Yeah, it is actually happening Already? right now every day. Yeah, a couple of years back, the Education Bureau had decided that you know the all the Chinese lessons should be taught in Mandarin instead of Cantonese. That's one thing. So that's a couple of years back. Going back to nowadays, you if you go to some poor area of Hong Kong, say the New Territories, Tinshan Wai. If you uh, walk there in uh, school off time, or if you see like kids on the street playing, they are speaking Chinese to them to their friends already. They are speaking Chinese to everyone already. They all understand Cantonese, but they think uh, Chinese is the you know speaking Chinese is the way to go. So uh, there there are already this kind of clash that we are having. We don't need to, even need to wait about two or seven. That's that's quite interesting. And I heard uh, are, are your TV programs in Hong Kong. I heard sometimes they're they're switching more over to to Mandarin. Isn't that right? Like the news, I think is yeah. Mandarin. Yeah, the news, the title. You know, we use traditional Chinese. Yeah. And uh, you know, we use Mandarin. It's simplified Chinese. One of the biggest uh, media outlet pro establishment is called TVB. They had uh, started to change their subtitle into sort of traditional uh, simplified Chinese already. <laughs> that's quite interesting and what about the elderly now, i just know in guangzhou uh, some of the more elderly people uh, still their mm. mandarin is not very good they still just uh, speak uh, cantonese wherever they go but it's mm. actually fine because most people can understand are some mm. of the the elderly people uh, not liking this they're not used to the change to mandarin mm. in in, yeah, in, in yeah. hong kong i, I mean it only makes sense like there, there are two sets of language that people speak in Hong Kong, and that bounds to be somewhat difficult. Not that it's impossible. I mean, look at Singapore. Yeah, they yeah. speak so many languages. But uh, uh, it will be uh, difficult to adjust. Difficult in terms of what will be the uh, official language of Hong Kong. It used to be English. Now it's becoming more and more Chinese. The... Uh, 
think that the thing we should look at is how the um, Segate Education Bureau would define what is uh, the legal language or the Hong Kong language, so to speak. That'll be an interesting thing to come up. I'm just somebody who, who loves mm. learning languages. So this is always an interesting mm. topic. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, Lomenghen, thank you very much. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, damn. <laughs> how was my tones? I, I never learned the Cantonese yeah, yeah. tones, so I don't know how to pronounce it so well. <laughs> yeah, but that, is nice. that one is a nice one. <laughs> Actually, maybe like my girlfriend is Singaporean who speaks some Cantonese. Yours are uh, <laughs> more or less equivalent to hers. Oh, so, that's good to hear because my Mandarin is much better. I can't yeah. say very much. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't doubt because I, I think it's easier. Yeah. Pinyin. Yeah, it's easy for me to see exactly how you pronounce a word. You know, when you write in pinyin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cantonese has always been very, very difficult for me. But oh, yeah. what I like is in Guangzhou, the the buses and the subway had three mm. languages. It was Mandarin, Cantonese, mm. and English. So. Uh, I learned how to say mm. things like mm. and things like that. Yeah, I apologize to the listeners who are just listening to me talk about languages. But uh, if you're interested in chi- learning Chinese language, uh, this, this kind of dialects are always very, very interesting. But anyway, I think, you know, the reason I asked this question is because in my country, South Africa, language is incredibly important mm-hmm. we have 11 official languages in south africa mm-hmm. so you can mm-hmm. be in the parliament of south africa and you can speak any one of 11 languages um which is mm-hmm. really amazing and i i think i quite like that mm-hmm. and singapore yeah, I also, think also. yeah singapore is also i think a great country they have how many they have four official languages they have chinese i think the chinese english and uh, malaysian yeah malay and tamil the indian language tamil yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they've been really, I think, really good with promoting all of those languages. Um, mm. But it's just something which might be a big change to people. Anyway, I have to say I'm very happy to hear that maybe the future of Hong Kong is actually could, could look good if if at least mm. it can overcome these problems. Mm. It's a very interesting place, and I, I hope not to... as stuck as a lot of people would have thought. Yeah, that's great to hear. Well, Lomenghen, thank you very much for mm. talking with me today. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. And one last thing, if people want to find you on social media, Twitter, something like that, mm. do you want to promote mm. yourself quickly? Uh, you can add me on LinkedIn. I'm uh, Menghin Lo. So that will be awesome. Cool. Well, I write your details in the description. Uh, thank you very mm. much, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. As usual, find our episodes on PIPA or on Apple Podcasts. Mm. You can read our articles at www.rationalstandard.com. You can follow me mm. on Twitter at Nick Babaya and also give us a like on Facebook. Until next time, mm-hmm. see you around.